there's something in the water in Louisiana. Well, in the holy water at least, in the Diocese of Lafayette. Last month, the Bishop of the Diocese of Lafayette officially opened the causes for canonization of two Louisiana Catholics, Miss Charlene Richard and Mr. Auguste Nonco Pelafig. The cause for a third candidate for canonization, Lieutenant Father Verbus Lafleur, was recognized by the bishop, though not yet opened. The priest's military service means his cause requires a few extra steps. There were a few remarkable things I noticed about these potential saints as I was writing about their causes. Not only are they from the same diocese, but they are all 20th century saints. They also come from very different walks of life. Charlene, a young girl who died at the age of 12, Nonko, a single lay Catholic who lived to be 89, and Father Verbus Lafleur, a priest who gave his life to save others when he was just 32 years old. And finally, they all have January birthdays. I'm not sure what that means, if anything, but I thought that was neat. This week on the podcast, I'm going to take a closer look at the lives of these Louisiana Catholics by talking to some of the people who knew them best. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. My name is Mary Farrow, and I'll be your host this week. We'll start with Auguste Nonco Pelafig. What struck me at first about his story is that he's a layman who was never married or never in a religious order, who lived to be 89. How many single lay saints do you know who lived to be really old? I can't think of any. Most of the saints I know were religious, a few were married, and all of the single saints I can think of died a young death. So to have a new potential saint who could possibly be the first ever canonized lay single saint who lived past his 30s is pretty remarkable. Nonco was born on January 10, 1888, near Lourdes in France, to devout Catholic parents with five children. They made many pilgrimages to Lourdes before they emigrated to the U.S. when Nonco was only two years old, and the family settled in the French-speaking town of Arneville, Louisiana. To learn more about him, I spoke with Mary Bello, a great-niece of Auguste Nonco, who remembers him from her childhood. She was 34 years old when he died. Oh, and by the way, she refers to him exclusively as Noko. Here's why. Noko was a blood relative to me. However, he was also considered everybody's uncle. That's how he got named Noko. Because you see, the word for uncle is Nok, and the first syllable of his name is Ogis, and that's pronounced with an O, so hence his nickname, Noko. Noko is Mary's great uncle. Her grandmother was his sister. Mary says she remembers seeing Noko often at her grandparents' house when her family would visit after Sunday Mass or when she would wait there for her dad to pick her up from piano lessons. She remembered knowing he was holy even as a child. I remember, you know, that uh, Noko was quiet, he was reserved, he was humble, he was faithful to God. You you felt it when you were with him. Even though I was young at that time, I, I knew there was something different about Noko. Mary says she remembers being told that Noko was a big help to his sister, Mary's grandmother, 
who had 11 children. So when the children were very young, before they could do the barnyard chores, Nicole would get up early each morning, walk to their barnyard, feed the cattle, milk the cow, so they could have milk for the family. When Noko went to college, he studied to be a teacher. And it was during this time that he began what would become the defining characteristic of his spiritual life, his devotion to the Sacred Heart. He was invited to join the Apostleship of Prayer, League of the Sacred Heart, an organization that originated in France and whose charism is to promote and spread devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and to pray for the Pope. Noko became an avid promoter of the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and at one point recruited some 1,200 people in his 1,800-person town to join the League. Of those, 101 were fellow promoters with Noko and would distribute the monthly prayers and readings for the group throughout the community. Noko was known for going on long walks to deliver these pamphlets on foot throughout the farming community. If someone stopped to offer him a ride when he was doing that, even when it was raining, Noko would refuse to ride. So when they would ask him, why, Noko, why don't you ride with us? It's raining. And he would say it was because he was doing penance for conversions and for the poor souls in purgatory. Some said they also noticed that when they stopped to offer Noko a ride, he was reciting the rosary, which he always carried looped around his left arm. I still can see that. Noko and his promoters would also interpret the English pamphlets for many of the League members who only spoke French. Just as Jesus and his apostles were missionaries in their time, I just feel that Noko and his promoters were rural missionaries of the 20th century. The leaflets he delivered included the monthly intentions of the Pope. He promoted the monthly intentions of six different popes. And I, I wrote them down so we would, we would know them. St. Pius X, Benedict XV, Pius XI, Pius XII, St. John XXIII, and St. Paul VI. In his role as a teacher, Nonko would put on plays about the Sacred Heart, and about saints on special feast days. Mary was often called on to play the piano for these plays. I asked Mary if she knew whether Nonko ever considered the priesthood or religious life, given how devout he was. She said she was too young when he was alive to have asked him that question, but he lived a holy life, and his pastor even considered him a second priest of sorts at the parish because of how involved he was. Although he was not a priest, Nonko lived a religious life. He attended and assisted, not only attended, but assisted at Mass on weekdays, on Sundays, and Holy Days of Obligation. He he served his church, his community, and his family throughout his life. Just because you're single and may not have a family and have those responsibilities, you can take on the responsibility of being a good servant to God. In 1953, when Nonko was 65 years old, Pope Pius XII gave him a pontifical award in honor of his service to the church. He was recommended for the honor by his own pastor. These were the words that he used to describe Noko, and I'm going to read them to you, okay? Mr. Pig has organized the League of the Sacred Heart with some 1,200 members and 101 promoters. 
he goes out on foot to visit the fallen away, invite them to prayer of the League. He teaches in the Catholic school, teaches catechism to the public school children, all out of the love of God with no pay. He organizes religious programs for the encouragement of the weak and edification of the strong. He has been in this parish another priest. He is most humble. He attends Holy Mass and receives Holy Communion daily. He assists at all the Masses on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. In a few words, he is a living example of the real Christian. Nonko spread devotion to the Sacred Heart for 68 years until his death at the age of 89 on June 6, 1977, which was the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I feel like that's just God's way of saying to Noko, well done, my good and faithful servant. Charlene Richard was born in Richard, Louisiana on January 13, 1947. I was lucky and got connected to her brother, John, who told me what he remembered about his younger sister. John and Charlene were the first and second oldest in a family of 10 children. They lived on a cotton farm, and while they never owned a tractor, they had horses and mules and grew corn and sweet potatoes and cotton. John remembers Charlene, who was just two years younger than him, as a very vivacious person. She never met a stranger. She was captain of the girls' basketball team and had a lot of friends, John recalled. She was a good student and had all A's and B's in her classes. And she was faithful, but not in a way that seemed overly showy. She was a religious person, yes. But she was not holier than thou. She had, she had principles very much. I never heard her use a, a, a bad word. John said he remembered Charlene standing up for a girl on the school bus who the boys were picking on, and they stopped their teasing. One of his fondest memories of their childhood was the sock hops that they would host at their home. She loved Elvis and little Richard and all of that when we were teenagers. You know, she was 12. I was 14. Uh, we used to have what they call sock hops at home. We invited friends to come and we danced in the kitchen and living room with our socks, not with our shoes on. Mama had all the lights on and the strongest drink there was Kool-Aid. Charlene was involved in the Junior Catholic Daughters, and John was an altar server, and the family and community's life revolved around the church and the school, John said. Charlene was her normal, fun-loving self when, as a middle schooler, she was given a terminal diagnosis of leukemia, a cancer of the bone marrow and lymphatic system. She had been complaining of hip pain one summer, and so her parents took her to a doctor who prescribed radium treatment a popular therapy at the time that is now known to cause cancer. John said he thought it was likely Charlene was already developing leukemia when she was given the treatment, and it just exacerbated her symptoms. She started passing out, and so her parents took her to have more blood work done. She took mom and dad into a private area and told them that she had lymphocytic leukemia and that she would not live very long. Uh, we were all crushed, you know. 
Charlene was placed in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, where Father Joseph Brennan was her chaplain and Sister Teresita was her nurse. John said that Charlene's parents asked Father Brennan to tell Charlene her diagnosis and prognosis because they were too devastated to do so themselves. He went in and he said, hi, I'm Father Brennan. And she said, well, hello, Father Brennan. He said, Charlene, you know you're very sick. She said, yes, Father, I know. He said, you probably won't get to go home. She said, okay. He said, one day soon, a beautiful lady is going to come and take you home. And she said, oh, yes, the Blessed Mother. And I'll tell her, Father Brennan said, hi. Be kind to Father Brennan because he was so kind to me. In a memoir, Father Brennan wrote of how struck he was by the faith and maturity with which Charlene faced her diagnosis. Every day, she would offer her sufferings for others. And every day he would visit her, she would say, who do you want me to pray and suffer for today? Charlene would live just two weeks after her initial diagnosis. She came home for 12 hours, but had to be rushed back to the hospital. She died on August 11, 1959, at the age of 12. Devotion to Charlene spread throughout the area, in large part thanks to Father Brennan, who called her the Little Cajun Saint, as well as through Sister Teresita and another priest, Father Callis, who was a chaplain at a nearby hospital. Father Callis was complaining to Father Brennan one day that being a hospital chaplain was wearing him down. He was tired of watching people get sick and die. Father Brennan told him about Charlene, and he said, she's a very extraordinary child, he said, and she's gone. She made a beautiful death. He said, she didn't only show us how to live, but she taught us how to die. Father Brennan encouraged Father Callis to pray for Charlene's intercession, that the bishop would assign him a parish instead of a hospital chaplaincy. He ended up being assigned to St. Edward's Parish which had been Charlene's parish. John said that the family and those in charge of Charlene's cause have been collecting other stories of prayers answered through the intercession of Charlene as proof of her holiness. He said the Rome postulator expects Charlene's cause to move along quickly because of how much documentation they have. John said he feels humbled that there is a possible saint in his own family, especially when he knew so many good people and good families growing up. I feel very humbled about it because all the families that I knew were just as good as our family. Sometimes it's overwhelming, too, to think that, oh, my God, somebody in our family may be canonized. And, and oh, you, you think back on some of the things that you've done in your young years and you were crazy, you know, and, and you think, oh, God, the Lord is really, really great to choose somebody from a humble family like ours, you know, the basic feeling I have is great love for my sister and my family and a lot of humility, a lot of humility. Coming up after the break, I'll tell you the story of Father LaFleur. Stay with us. This is Bishop James Wall from the Diocese of Gallup. Do you listen to the CNA Newsroom or CNA Editor's Desk regularly, or both? I do. I listen to it on the iPhone app. You can listen here or on any podcast platform. Just search for CNA Newsroom and hit subscribe. Each new episode will be delivered straight to your phone. Now back to the show. 
Father Joseph Verbis Lafleur was born on January 24, 1912, in Ville Platte, Louisiana. I spoke with Father Mark Ledoux about his story. Father Ledoux is a representative for the friends of Father Joseph Verbis Lafleur. He has worked on his cause and has a personal devotion to him. After learning about him from a relative and then attending the same seminary as Father Lafleur, and even being assigned to the parish where Father Lafleur had served. You know, it started with the introduction of his name by a relative of mine, and, but it really did grow into a friendship. Family and friends who knew Father Lafleur have recalled that he had a compassionate heart and was very attentive to the needs of others. While he was still in elementary school, he told his family that he wanted to be a priest after a visit with a local religious community. Not long after that, Father Lafleur's dad abandoned the family, which also affected him deeply. After a conversation with his parish priest and his mom, Father Lafleur left high school before graduating to join the seminary. He was ordained a priest on April 2, 1938, and not long after, he requested to be a military chaplain, just before the outbreak of the Second World War. Initially, his request was denied by his bishop, and he was sent to be a parish priest in Abbeville at St. Mary Magdalene Parish. It would be the only parish where Father Lafleur would serve before becoming a military chaplain. The people of the parish still remember Father Lafleur fondly. They remember Father Lafleur hawking his wristwatch to buy balls and bats for the poor kids of the parish, and then organizing games of baseball and tennis. They said he had a great sense of humor that was only on pause while he solemnly celebrated the sacraments. The people, both men and women, spoke about him so powerfully and kind of with a sense of possessiveness, like he, he's ours, you know. <laughs> but Father Lafleur still felt strongly called to be a military chaplain, even as World War II loomed, and he appealed to his bishop once again. This time, he was given permission. Father Ledoux said that he thinks Father Lafleur's time in seminary, as well as his experience of his father abandoning him, were key to his call to be a military chaplain. You know, seminary life, there's a brotherhood that certainly has created a sense of responsibility to each other, challenging each other. And I, I think also seeing the abandonment of his father in his fatherly role uh, and duty. I think all of that working within him is what moved him to say, the men are going to be without a father, a spiritual father. And he knew that, you know, he, he lived through that. And so I think for him, it was very much uh, a calling that God was giving him. And he, you know, he didn't back away from it. It, it seems as though he didn't fear it. Father Lafleur was sent to Albuquerque, New Mexico for training, but the base there had little experience with a chaplain, and they weren't sure how to accommodate the priest at first. So he lived at a nearby seminary. But within just a few weeks, Father Lafleur made friends on the base and was giving of himself in his usual spirit of generosity. He was hearing confessions, he was performing marriages, he was doing catechetical lessons, he was starting a Sacred Heart League. He was doing catechetical instructions for the men. He was organizing personally a baseball game for the men on the base. He really 
endured himself fully, immersed himself into to their need, into their life. In the fall of 1941, Father Lafleur and other fellow soldiers boarded a ship headed for Clark Field, a U.S. military base in the Philippines. On the three-week boat journey to the island, Father Lafleur continued celebrating the sacraments and attending to the men, keeping their spirits up. Father Lafleur had been in the Philippines less than three months when, on December 8, 1941, a day after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese attacked Clark Field and captured the country of the Philippines from U.S. control. It was a devastating attack on Clark Field because 93 men were killed, 143 were wounded, uh, and most of the B-17 bombers were destroyed. But in the midst of the bombing and the strafing, uh, Father Lafleur was seen uh, running out to the men calmly, but giving them last rites, hearing confessions, dragging some of them out of harm's way into safety. They said when everybody else was hunkered down in, uh, in, in uh, trenches, he was the one that was on the field, you know, running toward danger, running toward the men. Father Lafleur was given the Distinguished Service Cross, the second highest honor in the U.S. military, for his heroism that day. He would never know about the honor. U.S. forces surrendered to Japanese forces in the Philippines on December 9, 1941. As a Japanese prisoner of war, Father Lafleur was taken with other U.S. soldiers to Davao Penal Colony. While he had brief stays at other camps, this was where he spent the majority of the next two and a half years. As a POW, Father Lafleur's mission as chaplain intensified. He constructed a simple chapel for his men where they could have mass, and he named it St. Peter in Chains. He smuggled small pieces of bread and wine to use for the Eucharist, much like another World War II priest, St. Maximilian Kolbe, who did the same while he was imprisoned at Auschwitz. The Japanese gave bare minimum rations to the men, and so Father Lafleur would smuggle his own portions and any other food or medicine he could find to the men, and would frequently visit the sick in the infirmary. He would walk to the fence at night and try to befriend local Filipinos, many of whom were Catholic, and enlist their help as well. For lesser offenses, many men would have been killed, and the Japanese were typically not so welcoming of religious expression, but they feared Father Lafleur. With Father Lafleur, they would sometimes beat him, they would kick him, but he was always able to deal with them in such a way that they feared him. And they even said they would have killed him had it not been that they feared his God. After a few years on the island, the Japanese suspected that the U.S. military would be back to reclaim the Philippines. And so they recruited 750 men from Father Lafleur's camp to build an airstrip so that they could fly the POWs off the island and use them as leverage in negotiations with the United States. When Father Lafleur wasn't chosen as one of the 750 men, he asked if he could go as their chaplain, and he was denied. He said, well, I'll renounce my rank. Because that's what the issue was. It was not so much that he was a chaplain, but that as a chaplain, you were a military officer. He was a lieutenant. They still didn't want to let him go. So he 
again pushed and said, well, if I can switch places with one of the men and go as just a soldier, will you let me go? And they agreed to it. Conditions for Father Lafleur and the other men working the airstrip were brutal. They worked during the heat of the day, without proper nutrition or enough hydration. Many of the men were either already sick or were becoming sick with dysentery or malaria or other diseases. One day, as they were building the airstrip, the U.S. POWs were ordered onto a boat by the Japanese, who had heard that U.S. troops were on their way and could recapture the island and their men. The Japanese forced some 700 POWs into the hull of a ship and headed out into the ocean, hoping to maintain control of them should the U.S. military come. There was nothing demarcating the Japanese ship as one carrying POWs, and so when it was spotted by a U.S. submarine, they assumed it was a freight ship and fired two torpedoes into its side. Father Lafleur, that was last seen at the ladder from the hull of the ship, trying to push men out. When the Japanese realized that the ship was no longer seaworthy, they began to throw grenades down into the hull of the ship to kill the men. And the, and the men that got on, on deck or who were able to jump overboard, they were shooting at them in the water. Even if they weren't shot, the men, already exhausted from being in the hot, humid, and cramped hull, would have to swim about a mile and a half to shore. Rather than attempting his own escape, Father Lafleur stayed with his men. He had a rosary on him, and they said when the first torpedo hit, many of the men were begging for him to hear their confession. But he, he quieted the whole group in his compartment, and he told them, we need to pray. He led them in the Our Father. And those men who were just probably mentally losing it, he began to break his rosary, and he would give a bead of the rosary to these men. Only 83 men would survive the ordeal, and many of them have shared stories about Father Lafleur in his last hours. They said he was the last one off of that ship. He would not leave until everybody, you know, had gotten to safety. Father Lafleur was last seen on September 7, 1944, helping men out of the hull of the sinking ship. His body was never recovered. He received for heroism, beyond the call of duty, the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the second highest honor given by the U.S. military. He was uh, also awarded a Bronze Star and posthumously uh, the Purple Heart. In 2017, Father Lafleur was posthumously awarded a second Distinguished Service Cross and is still being considered for a Medal of Honor. One part of the process of preparing a cause for canonization is examining the writings of a potential saint. Father Ledoux said that Father Lafleur didn't write much, save for letters to family. I think the writing is in, is in his life. You know, no greater love hath man than to lay down his life for his friend. You know, we see that in some of the simple, selfless ways that Father Lafleur gave of himself as a son. We see this again as 
a seminarian. We see this as a priest when he's in Abbeville at St. Mary Magdalene. And then he does the exact same thing in the prison camps. And then ultimately, the giving of his very life. You know, that's the crowning moment, the act of virtue and heroism par excellence. Father Lafleur is honored with a plaque bearing his name in Arlington Cemetery in Washington, D.C., in a spot reserved for military chaplains. Father Ledoux said he thinks his life, as well as the lives of the other Louisiana Catholics, are a testimony to the good soil that these souls were nurtured in. Father Ledoux said that in order for Father Lafleur's cause to move forward, the Bishop of Lafayette will need to coordinate with the bishops in the Philippines where Father Lafleur died, as well as with the military archdiocese because of his service, although the archdiocese did not exist when Father Lafleur was alive. The causes of Noko and Charlene are officially opened, so stay tuned on CNA for more news on their causes as they move forward. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I've been your host, Mary Farrow. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks this week to all of our guests, and please remember to pray for these causes and to ask for their prayers as well.